I want to win again for sure, but like my next goal is, is Bathurst. Now that uh, emphasis on that raises, and I need to try and get that done. When I first took over the team at the end of 2012, beginning of 2013, uh, weren't especially rosy, but we managed to win a, a race with Chaz Mostert that year in, in July, and I thought, gee, this caper's bloody easy. Hey, I'm David Reynolds from Penrite Racing, and this is Inside Supercars. Welcome to a very special Inside Supercars, special because we've got a whole bunch of young blokes here, young motorsport journos who've been carving their way through the business for some years, and we'll go through, introduce them, tell a little bit about them, and first off, we've got Lachlan Mansell, who has an affinity because of many years involved with the Benalla Auto Club in Winton. He runs a business called Checkered Flag Media, has been a stalwart for the last how many years, Lockie? Um, I think I was still in high school, so um, I reckon this would be coming up to my 15th year working in motorsport this year. Well done, Lockie. Well done indeed. You've certainly made your presence at a very early age. Okay, second out of the blocks, we've got uh, Jordan Mullock, who uh, represents a couple of websites, one Motorsport Mate, and secondly, Touring Car Time in Jordan Mullock, who uh, comes from Canberra, I understand? Yep, that's right. Southside Pride. You've been involved in motorsport for a bit less than Rocky has, but a fair while still. Yeah, a few years less, but five years is enough of my time. Yeah, that's good to know. And thirdly is the one who's probably been the longest of those, that group of young, Rero from Speed Cafe. Now, um, a Newcastle native and still resides there, um, Dan? Almost, yeah. I'm back there fairly often. I am based up in the newsroom on the Gold Coast for the time being, but yeah, I'm down there quite often, to be honest. And you've been around motorsport and been writing about it for at least, I can think about it, 10 years. Yeah, so I've, uh, in my 12th year, actually, I've been a contributor for several years in uh, fulltimespeedcafe.com since the start of the 2017 season. So a uh, contributor for them and previously Motorsport E-News back in the old days as well. So a little while now. I'm board with Tony Whitlock and Craig Ravel. Now, the main thing that we wanted to get these young guys on is their point of view because they are young men, as compared with me, who just learned today that I'm only two years younger than Nicky Lauder when he died. And by crikey, that's a bit of a wake-up call. But anyway... The main thing we want to start off with is Winton Preview. Now, um, you all know the, the track well. It doesn't take rocket science to remember it. But um, memories of Winton, of course, we're coming up there with uh, Scotty McLaughlin being the both the pole sitter man of this year and also at that track. Lots of interesting things have happened at Winton. Um, tell us, Lockie, your strongest memory of supercars around the streets of uh, Banana. Uh, there's a couple that spring to mind for me. I think probably 2004 when there was just a single 300-kilometre race and Cam McConville took the win off Rick Kelly with a move in the second last corner on the very last lap. That was uh, certainly a memorable moment. And the other one for me was my first time commentating supercars at Winton, which was back in 2011, I remember that year, Jason Bright, who was in Brad Jones Racing Commodore that year, coming charging through. This was back when you had both the hard and the soft tyres to uh, come up with a uh, pretty dramatic race win on the Sunday. So they're probably the two most memorable moments for me at Winton. OK, Jordan, do you have any strong ones? Well, uh, I was actually watching some of the old races on TV at work today, and Tim Slade's performance in 2016 was a real standout to break through for his first win on Saturday and then back it up again on the Sunday and do some Albury-style burnouts in the dirt. That's got to stand out, even though I'm a Ford man. So Albury burnouts, right. And Dan, I know you... Uh, uh, it's not the easiest place in the world for somewhere in Newcastle to get to, but uh, obviously somewhere you've enjoyed over the years. 
Yeah, that's right. Lockie's actually probably stolen my answer there. I would have said 2004 as well, the last lap pass, but also that race, there was actually a lot going on in there. It was, you know, it was a, a wet weekend. We saw Ambrose go off. We saw Scaife have the drama. I remember Ambrose actually getting out and bleeding all the air out of the tyres so he could drive a four-wheel drive style off the wet grass. So that was something you don't see often. So probably 2004 to stand out for me from Winton. Oh, right, yes. Well, it's certainly a track I fondly remember. I actually remember the old track as well for all of your time. But anyway, uh, when uh, Dick Johnson, I think it was uh, racing around the clothesline, I think was his favourite line about it. But certainly there's been some great racing, uh, great tight racing. It's known as the action track for various reasons. Is that right, Loggy? Correct. The nation's action track is how we drive it into Raceway. Not just Victoria or the countryside, it's the nation's. All right. Well, um, it's certainly somewhere I'll be looking forward to. I suppose you all would have noted that to uh, pack your uh, raincoats and umbrellas for this weekend. I, uh, I certainly am quite happy that I'm not heading to Winton this weekend. Or otherwise, I think I'd freeze and get soaked to death. Um, there's, there's nothing that sounds more unpleasant than being in the middle of absolutely nowhere in Victoria and getting wet, but, you know, some people get off on that. OK, I live out in the middle of nowhere then, yeah, right. i got Wombat State Forest around me, but anyway. Um, Craig, do you have any strong memories of Winton? Jungle Juice is my strongest memory, and I don't know if you can credit that to the race day or the commentary afterwards, but uh, it certainly was a memorable moment and a great moment too for the Nissan program at the time to get their first win, albeit tainted by uh, the Sunday when the... Uh, complaints came in isn't it funny someone finally has a bit of success and everyone else is out to knife him in the back it just wouldn't happen these days yeah and very sad too of course because um it really wasn't necessary to do that um to taint them in that way one of my strong memories of winton relates to a track that is being used tomorrow and there's only one track that i park closer to um, the uh, media room than uh, the Indy 500, and that's Winton, where I park right next to the building on several times. But Indy, the Indy 500, the Indy media building, I have parked next to that one as well. But anyway, onward and upward. Um, what I wanted to raise with all of you gentlemen is something that, in fact, all I understand, the other four of you, are all subscribers in some way to pay TV. I'm not. Um, I find that there's too much on television for me to watch, let alone paying for extra. There's been a story that's been coming around, mainly because Tony Cochran on uh, with Russell and uh, Paul Morris, talking about um, the, the free-to-air deal was really bad for a bunch of reasons. Now, you all make the decision to subscribe, um, obviously not just for supercars, because you get the... Uh, well, actually, you've lost getting... Um, Indy cars this year, haven't you? But F1 is still the prime uh, goal for all of you. So, Dan, you you subscribe, and uh, as part of your job, you write on World Motorsport, so it's obviously very important to you. I do, yeah. I actually, uh, to be honest, I did make the jump in 2015 when Supercars did go to the current deal they have. But, yeah, it's, uh, it is, even just from a news perspective, it's invaluable for us as well to actually keep on top of it and uh, and also manage that workflow even around the weekend with how much there is televised. So it allows us to, you know, have that support back at base and still not miss out on the stuff that's happening on track. So, yeah, it is, from a personal perspective, it's, uh, it is great. Lockie, um, you're, you're obviously a motorsport professional and um, you want to know about what's going on and do you think that the only way was to sign up for uh, pay TV? Well, in 2015, when 
the current television deal started with a lot of the races only being shown live on Foxtel. I made the decision to subscribe because there were lots of races, not just supercar races, but also support categories that I was reporting on. So it made sense for me to have it. This year, though, I've actually changed. So Foxtel recently introduced KO Sports, which is the online streaming platform, which is basically all of the Fox Sports content. And it's significantly cheaper than having to get the full Foxtel package. So that's the approach that I've taken for this year. But I'm echoing what Dan says. The fact that they've got such extensive coverage, not just of the supercars, but also of the support categories, and then for somebody like myself, who myself employed and has to fund myself to attend racing events, uh, can actually save money by not necessarily having to attend every single motorsport event. And, of course, you're vitally involved in uh, a number of those categories, um, so you need to keep up to date with what, what's occurring there. So that gives you that. Jordan, uh, you're another subscriber for Fox TV, I understand. I am, but uh, I'm in the fortunate enough position to still be a freeloader, still living at home, mooching off the parents. So when uh, when Supercars did go over to Foxtel back in 2015, Dad thought that he couldn't really miss out on uh, watching his beloved races, so you know, luckily I uh, I just tag along with those. Craig, you've been a long time uh, subscriber to Fox. Um, it's a change. I understand there may even be an increase in pricing for uh, Fox subscribers. Look, there's a lot going on in the in the subscriber TV market, and Tony's comments about. Uh, Supercars being on should be on every race free to air are are a valid point of view if you can get the money. Now the other story that's coming out of the uh, the media industry is that it's very likely that Fox won't be paying the mega dollar deals for television cover uh, for sports coverage in the future. Now. This has a knock-on effect not only for supercars, but they are, they're openly talking about lower-tiered sports will not be getting the money they're currently getting. The first sport that's going to be hit by that will be Rugby Union, which is having its own set of dramas right now, as uh, I'm sure the uh, Northerners on the panel would be happy to talk about uh, at length. But interestingly, if... Fox start cutting back on their uh, rights deals, then that goes straight into the hip pockets of supercars and the trickle-down effect, as we like to hear in economics, means that the teams will be getting a smaller royalty check. Now, the last time teams got a small, smaller royalty check, Jordan, you covered that court case uh, quite extensively for Motorsport Mate. I was going to say, you might remember that from a few years ago, uh, that pretty much it came out of a, a court hearing about one of the racing entitlement contracts with one of the teams. I believe it was Dalberto's team, but pretty much the short end of it is that it actually came up and showed that the TV rights deal with Foxtel effectively saved the Supercars Championship. The deal that the, the category was then able to do with the teams, to keep them on board and on site, really saved the championship and allowed everybody to race on and interestingly on that too jordan uh, it was actually uh, i think Dee ferrari or um dumbrell at the time i think uh, yeah, right. had Sorry, been out of that. but it was interesting at the time that the court documents that were released really showed how much um owners 
owned businesses were propping up the sport. And that's critically what happens if the TV rights uh, fee drops in any way, shape or form. Well, you know the old story that if you want to make a small fortune out of motor racing, you should start with a big one. Um, seeing some of the numbers there and, yeah, certainly how much some of the team owners and sponsors were putting into it. One unnamed team which remained uh, linked with HSV was uh, reported to spend quite a bit of expenditure on the project. So it is interesting that it's all still going, but uh, we'll definitely see in the next round of TV deals just what is uh, on offer for all the teams and the category itself. Now, Lockie, you are a big rugby league fan, and uh, I'm sure you're watching a, a few of those Parramatta Eels games on KO. But what has been fascinating is in the last two months, we've seen Gil McLaughlin and their head of scheduling at AAFL going over to America, and they're starting to speak to uh, the Amazons and other online providers with the, uh, you know, obviously the eyes open about, well, Foxtel might not be kicking in the cash they used to. What about these online providers? And that could be a very interesting mix in the next media rights deal for supercars. Well, I think there's a few issues at play here. So I've watched the um, enforcer and the dude show with Paul Morris and Russell Engel, and I listened to Tony Cochran's comments about supercars needing to have a free-wear TV deal. And Tony's argument was that going to the Foxtel deal in 2015, it was a short-term gain in terms of the money that they received from Foxtel, but it was a long-term loss in terms of the viewership they lost and therefore the exposure which translates to less sponsorship dollars. But I think it goes a bit beyond that because it's not just as simple as saying that we need to go back to having a free-wear TV deal. As you've just touched on there, Craig, the whole way that people are consuming sports content is changing. And it's not just going to affect motor sports, but it's going to affect other sports as well. People want to watch sport now on demand. They want to watch it when and where they want to watch it. So, you know, if they can't watch it live for whatever reason, they expect that they're going to be able to watch it afterwards. Uh, people are generally accepting of the fact that they might have to pay for on-demand consumption sport. And we've seen sports like NRL and AFL that you can subscribe to pay-per-view type services. But looking more specifically at motorsport and supercars, the big challenges here are going to be finding funding for the teams because we know just how heavily reliant the teams are on that income stream that comes from the TV rights sale. But not only that, also finding the dollars to create the content because let's not forget that supercars through supercars media and supercars television produces all of its own content. So the money for that has to come from somewhere as well. And with the fact that Foxtel posted that loss that was reported in the media and the fact that they're potentially not going to be in position to pay big dollar value deals for TV rights to various sporting codes, and he's going to present some big challenges for supercars when that current TV rights deal expires at the end of 2020. And, Dan, that's probably what supercars are hoping to hand their hat on, is the fact that we're an in-house production, so we are giving those pitches to whoever the rights holder is, and we 
have control of the message. We have control of the entire branding. So therefore, so therefore, there is a, a really strong package that you're just paying us to deliver the whole thing. Unlike with the football codes, where they have to produce the pictures for some of the games and then get given the pictures from the free-to-air network for the other. That's right. Yeah, and the I mean the other thing is that Supercars already has the Superview service for I think it's most of the markets outside Australia and New Zealand. The Fox Sports one and the Foxtel one in general is an interesting point. And yes, there are sporting organisations would probably be very nervous seeing that. Uh, you mentioned Rugby Australia. I'd say the FFA, when their deal comes up, will probably be pretty nervous as well. The, um, I guess the wild card in it, though, just another one to throw into the mix, is uh, CBS. So we saw, I can't remember the exact figures, but um, since they bought 10, and 10's got the rights back to the Melbourne Cup Carnival, and there was a big uplift there because I think they've recognised that they need, they need sport to get eyeballs back to the network in general. Uh, and obviously they have the association with supercars now so you know it's not to say that um the fox sports might not be as willing to pony up the cash next time around is a negative i don't think it's all doom and gloom it's an interesting dynamic to see how all those factors kind of offset each other after break on inside supercars this week we'll be back with our special panel talking about supercars and other subjects each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Still a bit in shock. Uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks, everyone. Dissecting the sport with interviews, news and opinion. Got to put money back into the sport at the lower levels to develop the kids and bring them up. You can't rely upon good luck for Daniel Ricciardo's old man to have found a few mates that tip some money in and send him overseas. There actually needs to be a structure. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Hi, I'm Jack LeBrock from Truck Assist Techno Racing. Welcome to Inside Supercars. And talk about Perth. Um, I didn't go, but I watched uh, on TV, and uh, it was pretty worthwhile. Certainly, uh, after seeing back in Calder, in fact, under lights, um, I've last missed the last two uh, lit demonstrations on supercars, but they were pretty dynamic sort of races. Uh, um, your feeling about them, uh, Lockie? Well, like you, Tony, I didn't go to Perth either, so I was consuming it from sitting at home on the couch in front of the TV as well. But I thought that the atmosphere was spectacular. Um, with the driver introductions before the Saturday night race, I preferred how they did it at Sydney Motorsport Park last year. I thought it would have been better seeing drivers out of the cars being introduced to the crowd. The racing itself was... Not as good as what it has been at Perth in the past, but I know that a few other people have commented on this as well. The race surfacing, obviously, it would have made the cars more enjoyable to drive because the track was a lot more grippy and the tyre degradation was nowhere near as high as what it has been at Perth in previous years. But that took away a lot of the strategy that has made Perth such an unpredictable event in the past. So, um, you know, obviously the resurfacing needs to be done and we need to remember that supercars are not the only category that races there and they have to look after their club-level categories over there at Bar Gallo and 
platform so the people who probably use the circuit for corporate type events during the week. But selfishly, thinking just about supercars, it's almost a bit of a shame that it had some people at surface. Dan, um, yeah, you would have gone over for Perth? Uh, no, I was back. We had a couple of journos over there, but I was back in, uh, in the office supporting it, which was interesting working with those time zones and night races. Yeah. Uh, um, it just, it was, I mean, there's, there's no reason why it couldn't have been done in the day, but obviously it is, it is a much better spectacle at night. Uh, the impact on the racing, you know, it's, it's hard to tell what the impact was given that there was the resurface and obviously just time moves on in 12 months. Look, I, um, I quite liked it. It was, you know, it's something a bit different. It's, it's nice to look at. I, I hope they don't overdo it. I think you're probably going to touch on that soon. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was uh, it was pretty good. Yeah. And Jordan, you would have been a television watcher, I imagine? Yeah, I was uh, I was back in Canberra watching it, so I was able to thankfully watch the uh, the Friday race live from home. And, you know, I thought it was pretty fantastic, or at least the uh, the result was also with um, Jamie Winkup getting Triple Eight to, to call off the team orders uh, to let uh, Van Gisbergen buy. So, you know, um, yeah, I was eventually able to watch the Saturday night race and it was pretty good racing, you know, as as we come to expect from Barbagello. The thing that we need to remember is that the racing is not going to be more spectacular under the lights. It's the same product as always, just that, you know, yeah. now it's delivered in pretty much a prime time fashion. You get to see the flame shooting out and the road is blowing and everything like that. Yeah. There is the chance, chance of teams making mistakes. You actually raise an interesting point because one of the things that I've enjoyed over many years of supercars, and I actually remember talking at some length with Marcus Ambrose when he was competing in NASCAR, um, and one of the car television, as it was, um, that our cars looked more brutal than NASCAR did. And one of the reasons was because they made a mistake in NASCAR of having cameras far too high. Now, that's what I felt was in Perth. They were going for the dynamic of the lights and the effect of the cars racing, but they made the cars look rather slot car-like and small, not brutal as as they still to drive. I, I thought that there's a mistake. You walk a fine line when you're showing the overall picture of turning the cars into a little slot car track. Um, it, one of the things that made our television and one of the reasons why Europeans liked it so much was because the cars look brutal. They look like hard work to drive, and even in NASCAR. And, of course, you know, talking with Marcus Ambrose, I remember him so well saying, he says, mate, every corner you don't know whether you're going to survive. And he was talking particularly then about Watkins Lane and those sort of tracks. But the reality was that while those NASCAR look more brutal than our supercars, that's not what appeared for the viewer because the way in which it was shot, showing the bang brutally hitting the curbs. And it's just an interesting thing, which I think that they really ought to be aware of when they're looking back at reviewing what was shown both at, at Eastern Creek last year and, of course, this year in Perth. Anyway, look, I think we need to move on a bit because we've got a few things to get through for further. Um, what I'd like to do is... is uh, have a little bit of a season review of everybody, all the teams, not go through every one of them, but I'll throw my first pitch out with, I, I just want to make a comment about how fantastic it is to see Brad Jones, as, as everyone around the sport who works in it knows that they're not a highly funded team. You know, Nick Perkett rolls out a new sponsor and new colours at virtually every race, um, and yet there they are. They've got both their drivers in the top ten in the points, and that's not something 
consistently been fast at vastly different tracks this year, and I think both Tim and Nick have been in a champion job, as have the whole of BJR. They're leading in the pit competition, which is not important in itself, other than the fact that they work at every aspect of their racing, and Jones brothers alike. They are fierce competitors. There's almost none fiercer. I just want to talk about probably the, uh, the elephant in the room this year, which has been Walkinshaw and Andretti United. You got to wonder how uh, how well all of Zach Brown's investments are going this year. Um, he's going to be like Eeyore at the end of this season, just totally not having a good time at the moment. Um, so Walkinshaw and Andretti United not racking up the results that they want to this year. Um, you know, pretty much no podiums, no wins, nothing like that. But and also fighting down, you know, for 20th place in the last place Grand Prix run among all the heroes in their own lunchboxes. So that's a real problem for a team that was only a couple of seasons ago, the, the Holden factory outfit, and to now have a big foreign investment from Walkinshaw, well, sorry, from Andretti and United Autosports, it's, it's just unacceptable with the way that they're performing at the moment. And while you think that Scott Pye with his breakthrough win last year certainly trying to improve and he's coming to confidence and this is really the time where he needs to make it as a driver full-time. James Courtney's just gone AWOL mentally. You know, he's just not there. His mind's on other things. I'm aware that, you know, there's been stuff going on outside of racing in his life, but at the same time, for the 2010 Series champion to be absolutely struggling and, you know, hitting it out amongst the back of the pack with, you know, pretty much the sophomores of the category just unacceptable for a team of their calibre. I imagine Zach Brown's problem is exacerbated this week with Alonso not qualifying for the Indy 500. That kind of made life easy. No, he he would be having a serious uh, sense of humour deficit at the moment. Dan, your thoughts on any team in particular? I think think it is fair to say that uh, Walkinshaw and United has been Probably the biggest disappointment. The Brad Jones Racing one is interesting. I guess the, I mean, the other thing is that you, most often through bad luck, they end up having to rebuild a car every couple of race weekends, which is just, I don't know, honestly don't know what they've done, but it's just the theme over the last few seasons that they seem to have a lot of bad luck in that regard. They're, um, they were also up there, though, in sort of 2013, which was a major spec change, obviously, when the car of the future came in. And now we've got, you know, uh, Twin Springs have been outlawed, so it's uh, it's interesting to see that they seem to react very well, or the uh, the pack seems to come to them whenever there's a significant change in the spec. Uh, DJR Team Penske, you know, I think it's still fair to say that they've overperformed because they've just been, you know, so good. You see them, you know, racking up one twos in most sessions in a race weekend. Certainly, Phillip Island. And at Barbagallo, uh, if there's one to hone in on just quickly, and I know I'm going more micro than a team, but you look at Will Davison, so 23 red has come into Tickford now, and he's only 30 points behind Chas Mostert, he's seventh in the championship. So he's, you know, vying to be the best of those Tickford-run cars. The other one, of course, is, is Erebus, because... Um... You know, Anton has clearly, uh, you know, taken his first podium this year, of course, but um, he has uh, probably, of of the drivers in the pack, the whole pack of 24, um, the one who would be almost most... While he hasn't got the big point score, he definitely is uh, matching uh, David uh, blow for blow, really, on uh, their weekends of racing, isn't he? Yeah, definitely. He's... uh... 
he's really, I mean, he had the rookie season last year. He made his mistakes. He's really starting to come on uh, this year and certainly displaying a, a higher level of maturity. And uh, he's progressing really well. Craig, I imagine that uh, GRM, who I know were long-time favourites of yours through uh, your good friend Gary, um, they've certainly been a, an incredible disappointment over the last two seasons. Yeah, it's been interesting, hasn't it? I I thought they were on the rise last year. I thought they were, had the building blocks there with Garth, and this year it hasn't been there. Now, we had Barry Rogers on the show last week, and he did roll out an extensive package of uh, works that they're doing, TCR, also the Super 5000s. Is, is the team getting stretched too thin now? or it's, it's, it, it's very interesting. Remember, they are the Super 2 defending champions at the moment, and uh, they have gone backwards, I think is safe to say, in the supercars field. And, you know, dropping... Uh, an experienced driver to go for a sophomore uh, and a what a third year driver, so a sophomore and a senior. I think you'd uh, class that using the American terms. Just is a is a dangerous thing to do when you're rebuilding. I go for Carlton. I know exactly how dangerous it is. <laughs> can I can I just quickly touch on saying quickly that Craig said there and where you said that they're stretching themselves too far. You know, with TCR as well, Supercars and Super Five Thousand. Think back two seasons ago with the Red Bull Holden Racing Team, who has been run as the factory Holden team, developing the ZB Commodore, running three cars, and also developing the V6 Twin Turbo Holden engine at the time, yet they still won the Drivers' Championship with Jamie Winker. I know that's a massive difference in funding between them, but seriously, you're only as good as your last performance, but also the thing is that Triple Eight could take on that workload. GRM has elected to take on this workload so it's only on them that they can't perform across the board. Yep, and that's well, fair other, play. Yeah, the other part about it is that um, that uh, the four TCR cars are being run, certainly at the track, by different people. Bruin Beasley running the uh, the two Renaults and one of the Alphas, and Ash Seawood is running the uh, the second of the Alphas. So there are other people being recruited in to take the weight on race weekends, but <clears throat> you'd have to say that uh, GRM have certainly developed... Um, and at a time when they really need to be almost knuckling down on their uh, team. But it, this bodes uh, well for maybe Peter Adderton saying, well, I should take the whole thing over, and maybe that's what's going to happen. But I just wanted to make the observation about a couple of drivers that have changed teams for this year. So quite well publicised, Mark Winterbottom and Lee Holdsworth effectively swapping seats at the start of the season. So Frosty heading to Team 18, and Lethal Lee heading across to Pickford. And at the moment, they're 11th and 13th in the championship, respectively, with Winsbottom slightly ahead. Um, Winsbottom's probably been the stronger of the two performers so far, you would have to say, because he did get the pole position down in Tassie. Um, and Lee, it has to be said, has generally been weakest out of the four Pickford cars so far. Yes, it's interesting you, you raise them, in fact, uh, that while they uh, swap seats, so to, so to say, um, they didn't, of course, uh, go like for like, because, of course, Mark had a, a fairly massive improve on what Lee had had when he was working for uh, Charlie Schwerkholt, um, and Lee's moved into a factory one fourth car, um, you know, it's it's. Look, I think this weekend will be certainly uh, not a make or break by any stretch for Tickford, 
but they really should be showing the sort of speed they used to. I mean, they won four races in a row over two years um, back in fourteen fifteen. So Winton's a track that their drivers have known well and that they've done well at, and they've been able to put the right thing in there. So it'll be interesting to Another team of drivers I'd like to highlight, Todd Hazelwood and Matt Stone Racing. So they've got the new ZB Commodore for this year. I've got some technical support from Triple Eight, and it has been very much an improved performance from those guys. We've seen that Todd's had a few top ten finishes. He's had a bit of bad luck as well, particularly at Bill Diamond, where he got puzzled off by James Courtney. But when you consider that Matt Stone doesn't have anywhere near the resources of a lot of the other teams, and also they've seen the news a bit over the last week with the whole collapse of um, Aussie driver search and the ramifications of that. Um, and possibly the fact that Matt Stone Racing missed out on some funding that they might have been expecting from Aussie Driver Search earlier in the year. To put all of those distractions aside and get some really solid results out of their main game cars and good effort. One of the items that's come up in the last few days is control shocks. Technical have put out for tender um, that anybody's looking to add to it. Now, one of the things that, of course, it's being done under the guise of cost cutting but i happen to think it could have a real benefit also in in uh, cutting the uh, competition gap between the rich and the poor um as uh, obviously we've seen where triple eight came back to the pack um after they with their twin spring setup um and uh this control shock thing it could have a real benefit in in next year if it is introduced um in doing that little bit more to close up not that we need a closer pack because obviously we you know go to tracks where there is the proverbial second over 20 cars but it certainly makes it interesting jordan that if there was to be changed to a control shock yeah well uh unfortunately i wasn't around as much or you know i was only a wee lad back in the days when pretty much everything was an open tender part depending on you know which team you're in you know back in the multiple tire days of dunlop yokohama bridgestone you had pretty much no car was running the same one part apart from maybe engines gearboxes and that kind of stuff and now we're talking about centralizing and creating control parts for nearly most of the cars. So we've got to control chassis, we've got to control tyre, we've got to control transaxle, pretty much control engine. And there's a lot of stuff which is going to one unified part across the field. And I think if you, if you take it to that level where you're letting the shocks be a control part, sure, that will you know kind of bridge the gap between the rich and the poor. But really, at that stage, it's really does become just a spec series. I mean, what else remains different between the cars apart from the engines and the car-to-car setup, which at the moment would also depend on what damper package that they're using. So I don't think it's a smart idea because then you may as well just run a field of spec cars similar to, you know, IndyCar or even Carrera Cup where they are literally identical apart from the setups. Um, I, I think that having that change in suspension is the, is the biggest part that we need to retain right now in the series to make sure that there's enough of a difference between the teams in the way that they set up their cars to make it, you know, a really open series. Dan, have you got thoughts on control parts? Well, there's no question that there's a definite appetite among the paddock for cost-cutting. I think cost-out apparently is a phrase that uh, the CEO, Sean Seymour, is quite partial to. Uh, it is It is necessary to rein in the cost when you see 
And granted, there are factors around it, but when you see two of the bigger teams handing back racing entitlements contracts uh, last year, we know that it is tough out there. Um, on the specifics of a control shock, um, I'm kind of undecided on that one so far. I probably wouldn't be too averse to it. I, I take the point that you don't want to restrict the team too much. You still want to speed motorsport. Um, but yeah, if a control shock came in, I probably wouldn't be all that concerned. And even, and we see too, we talk about spec series and yeah, you know, what one makes series don't often inspire people, but you even see, you see it in Carrera Cup, you see it in IndyCar, the the level of preparation and the professionalism and even, and that also in part comes down to how much money, you will still see the cream rise to the top eventually. Uh, it just might be a, a bit tighter on the way there. After the break, we'll be back with Inside Supercars, Craig Will, Tony Whitlock, along with Jordan Mullock. Lockie Mansell and Dan Herrero. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it means a lot. You know, through the years, a lot of reference this race is one of our majors. 600 miles around here is no easy task. Uh, we were able to beat the two levels to the boys and, uh, and meet Anthony Bigley in the final, which uh, we were able to do after, um, take the win off him. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a great weekend for the uh, Rapstone family. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Sport Radio Facebook page. Hi, I'm Will Brown, co-driver of the Penrite Racing number 99 car for Anton Di Pasquale. Welcome to Inside Supercars. One of the last uh, topics I'd like to CR, which made its debut at uh, Eason Creek, Sydney Motorsport Park last weekend. Um, and a couple of you were there. Um, Jordan, um, give us your thoughts on uh, seeing it firsthand. From my point of view, the television looked terrific. And I was uh, enjoyed seeing the definitive uh, uh, levels of the different makes. Also watching the skill levels of some young drivers really coming to the fore. So tell us, uh, what's your thoughts on it, Jordan? Yeah, I, I really liked it. I, I think the big difference is that compared to, you know, the 90s when Super Tourers came in is that they've set it as a point of difference against supercars, but they haven't gone up as, against it as a direct competitor, even though you've got some drivers in there like Andre Heimgartner who are um, competing in the Supercars Championship. But I, I really liked it. You know, you, even though the racing is a bit slower than what we're used to in supercars, it was really close, uh, hard sport just needs a bigger grid to succeed, but I think it will go pretty well. I was a sceptic of it uh, when it was first announced. I still do think that in Australia there's too many slices of the motorsport pie being divided up, but at the same time, if you've got a pretty much now a second Premier Class series in the country, that'll be a really good breeding ground for competitors across the nation and maybe lead to them to step up to a category like that, which will then offer uh, you know, international opportunities in the future, we'd hope. Lockie, um, one of the things that uh, is terrific about it, and you were there, was that um, manufacturers stepping back into motorsports. Um, uh, Honda, I don't know how much uh, Hyundai are involved, but Subaru appear to be slightly involved. Um, maybe Volkswagen. You know, traditionally been involved in circuit racing in this country that was great to see and I imagine uh, you had the opportunity to work around some of that. Indeed so I was actually quite heavily involved in the weekend because um, a couple of my clients, Dylan O'Keefe and Ash Seawood Motorsport, they were running Dylan actually had a really good run and got second in the Alfa Romeo and also 
one of my other clients, GWR, and Garth Walden Racing were running Michael Armand, who charged through and came third in the final race of the weekend. But in terms of the manufacturer interest, although I don't think any manufacturers are tipping in huge amounts of money just yet, it was interesting to see that there were some key personnel from some of the manufacturers. I know certainly Honda and Renault who were in attendance over the weekend. But uh, just a couple of other things that I noticed. I saw that the race format on the Sunday where they had one 16-lap race, then they had a really short 20-minute break, then they did another 16-lap race. That worked really well because fans knew that they weren't going to have to stick around for too long until there was more action. And also the spectacle of the teams having to park their cars in pit lane at a 45-degree angle and be making adjustments and working on the cars in broad daylight in open field fans and an extra element of the sport, watching the teams working frantically to turn the cars around from one race to get them ready for the next in such a short space of time. So I thought that was good. I know that, um, obviously, in terms of what the Australian racing group who are running TPR, what they've invested in it and what they've thrown at it to make it work, it's been a massive effort. Where the jury is probably still out to me at the moment is exactly where TCR is going to end up, where its position in the motorsport landscape is going to be. Because at the moment, you've got supercars at the very top level of Australian motorsport as a destination category. Where is TCR going to fit into the mix? Will it be a stepping stone category for drivers who are trying to get the supercars? Will it end up as another destination category where people can aspire to race and be able to race professionally? Or will it be more of a recreational category for the in inverted commas weekend warrior type drivers who are out there for enjoyment rather than trying to pursue a professional motorsport career? Lockie, yes, you certainly bring up an interesting point there because it does seem to me that uh, with the vast array of driving talent and experience uh, on the grid, uh, last uh, Saturday, Sunday, um, it, it definitely looks like a category where drop their skills before moving on, whether it be overseas. And, you know, it, it, of course, there's not, not, not a, enough done to help drivers get overseas nowadays. Now, CAMS might have its institutions and all its little you know, scholarship things, but it doesn't seem to me that they uh, really cut through anyone who or height overseas does it despite what cams may get involved in but the great thing is what tcr has is that you know this is what the 17th series running in the world now Lockie? well yeah there's the, obviously there's now the world tcr series which has effectively replaced the world touring car championship and then you've got various other series in asia and america and europe and a lot of the tcr cars running the preventive endurance events like the Dubai 24-hour and the Barcelona 24-hour as well. So that's probably the other good thing about the cars is because the technical specifications are pretty much uniform right around the world, you can take a TCR car and race it in lots of different places. And obviously, once you adapt to the driving style of the car, it's going to be relevant and compatible with the cars overseas too. So you're right, it's probably... Um, as far as touring cars go, it's potentially shaping up to be a good international stepping stone, certainly in a much stronger position than uh, Formula 4, which had a, a very 
brutally honest here, a pathetic player with a grand total of seven cars on the grid during the weekend. Now, I'm interested in something that you said there, Lockie, because um, you were saying the 16-lap race, 20-minute break and 16-lap race. Dan, doesn't that sound like a 60-60 format, which was generally hated by the racing fans that followed supercars? Funny thing is, if you multiply 16 by the length of Sydney Motorsport Park, you do get just over 60. Hopefully, uh, coincidentally. Yeah, um, it was hated. It was, well, hated. It was yeah, pretty unpopular. Um, I think part of that, they, was, they tried to make it the one race, and it was just a bit strange having a half-time break in a motor race. I, I, you know, I, I don't mind the short turnaround and the... And the um, and the Parks May element at the start of that, it's you know it's something different, different challenge. It kind of sets it apart from the first race. And the other thing is that is, and even with all those benefits, and you know you can try and dress it up for this reason, that reason. It's also just to be completely pragmatic. You fit it in the telecast window, so you've got your you've got your two hours where you're on SBS on a Sunday night, and you can manage to fit both your races in and get them live. So I, that. I can see that staying, and I, I think that's fine. It would also uh, appear that may actually attract, uh, not that SBS you know, is uh, known as a great uh, place for sponsors, but in order for a Renault or a Honda or a Hyundai, somebody to get out there and show their colours, it would be terrific to see that if some of those uh, car makers and importers in this country were able to actually back up the, the cars they're helping on the track uh, amounts, but that would be a, a great side benefit to it. Um, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the racing. I was a bit uh, surprised to see uh, Nathan Morecambe screaming that he's been uh, harshly dealt with. It seemed to me pretty blatantly obvious that he uh, he stuffed up, and he has done that several times when he was driving in uh, Super 2, um, and uh, less so in GTs, but... Uh, um, I, I thought overall the standard racing was pretty good. Yeah, I, I, I really thought that the the quality of the racing was pretty great. You know, you've got a lot of young guys and girls in there for that matter. Um, you know, lots of now experienced drivers. Everybody's got a few years under their belt. So, um, yeah, the, the racing was really competitive and good. I think the best parts of it were them showing the occasional on board, especially through uh, Turn 1 at City Motorsport Park, which looks like about the scariest thing in the world uh, in a front-wheel drive car. That lift-off overseal certainly gets you through there. I think I've seen a couple of years ago there was a Pulsar production car that had quite a big off-and-roll at that corner, and every time I think it was Jason Bright who went a bit wide in one of the races and ended up onto the marbles and somehow managed to regather it. So... You know, certainly the the quality of racing is good. The race craft is good. And now the, the officials have handed down those punishments to Morecambe. They have to make sure that they remain consistent to that, which is probably something that people have become disenchanted with supercars with because they haven't been as consistent and clear with their penalties. Mm. Now, Lockie, the only manufacturer that's putting money in at the moment is Honda. However... The fact that Subaru was happy to let uh, an old school buddy of yours, Molly Taylor, uh, into the into the event does show that they are keeping an eye on it whilst not kicking the can, as it were. Well, I, I don't know that it was necessarily a case of Subaru letting her into the event. I think it was the fact that she was 
probably wanting to compete in a bit of circuit racing. There was an opportunity to drive in the category in a Subaru. So that kind of thing made sense. I would um, suggest if but, Subaru didn't want it, Lockie, it wouldn't have, she wouldn't have been in the car. Mm, yeah, I, I don't know that they were chipping in per se, but um, anyway, it was good to see her on the grid. Um, but just getting back to your original question, Craig, in terms of manufacturer support, I think that a lot of manufacturers will send their interest over the weekend um, and potentially the value that there is there for them to connect with people. And even if manufacturers themselves aren't directly getting involved in the category from head office, I think you'll find that there might be single networks that start to form consortiums to get involved in the series because the sorts of benefits that are available to the ride days or corporate events, corporate functions of racing events and, you know, other things that they can leverage off to provide incentives to their customers or to their staff members, they're potentially going to be able to get involved in TCR for a lot less money than what it would cost them to get involved in supercars and with cars to the realm of what they're selling in the showrooms as well. So... I think there's definitely benefits there from the network getting involved. Dan, we've almost come full circle on this conversation because we're now getting into the fact that a series like this is almost a uh, like a football sponsoring an AFL team, isn't it? Because the cars are all developed and you're not paying for like Nissan did, like uh, Volvo did, and uh, and you're not paying to build this car, even forward with the Mustang, if you like. Uh, you're not putting that money in it. This car is built. It's purchased here into Australia. And if you want to put your logo and, and do some activations in and around it, it's no different to any other commercial sponsorship you're going to do. No, that's right. I mean, the cars, as you say, they're the same spec all around the world. And they, they come here and the teams run them. Um, we can't get too carried away with manufacturer support because there are, you know, regs that, that kind of limit the involvement that the manufacturers can have. So you're never going to have full factory teams. And, I mean, the other thing is we've got to remember, obviously, you know, your hardcore motorsport fans are very excited to see TCR. It did get a very good run across the weekend. It got a lot of run across the, uh, the mainstream outlets as well. It is, though, at the moment, it's a Shannon's Nationals category, so I think it's just it's baby steps to see how it plays out. You see probably towing the water exercises from those manufacturers that are represented on the grid, or um, or as uh, as we just said, the the dealer groups. I think we'll just wait and see. It will. It's it's probably a bit of an experimental exercise for in terms of the prospective commercial supporters at the moment. Really, one of the things that's important though with manufacturing. And that's not obviously, you know, owning their own teams and those sort of things. But one of the things that's important, and this is somebody who works in advertising in the car industry for 25 years, is that manufacturers stepping in and advertising the fact that, you know, they had the wins on Sunday sort of thing coming by on Monday. It's the fact that, you know, manufacturers become proud of it. I mean, I, you know, I instigated a thing called the Racefacts Manufacturers Cup. Now, I was ridiculed by quite a few journos in the day. Yokohama stepped up and would give me two grand a year, which is terrific. But I know, because I would go and see both at Holden and Ford, they would proudly put that cup in their foyer. They're demonstrating the fact that, look, we're winning. 
how good is that? And this was, you know, just something, I mean, I wasn't being pandered to. I wasn't being, you know, it was the fact that they won this Manufacturers' Cup back in the day. And this is long before supercars or a Vesco or anything like that was involved in it. It's just that interesting thing where manufacturers will grab what, what they can in the way of success to tout their wear. The other thing I wanted to raise with uh, uh, you gentlemen was the A1GP. I don't know how many of you guys ever went to those events at Eastern Creek. Right. Yep. Now, one of the things that was very distinctive, and I actually had long conversations with Cochrane about it, is because in the car park you could see and standing behind a person that was not normally at a race meeting in Australia. Young men who were following their country, whether they were Japanese, Chinese, Lebanese or whatever, that came there and they were driving different cars. They weren't driving the Commodores and the Falcons in the car park. They were the small cars, the Hondas and the Hyundais and all those things. But it was a different audience. And I talked to Cochrane about the fact or considered getting F3 where there were young drivers and getting in that involvement where you'd get people to come and watch, not necessarily come and see the Falcons and the Commodores, to see other categories. Now, you know, obviously, you know, the Utes did that sort of thing to a different audience again, but essentially the same one. But see that different audience, Lockie, at the weekend? Yes, I did, actually. Um, I, I spent some time out in the crowd during the CCR races on top of the pit complex at Sydney Motorsport Park, and it was definitely a different sort of audience to what you were getting at the supercars event. If I had to describe the demographic of the audience, I would say it was actually quite similar the sorts of people that you get at events like World Time Attack, for example, because gotcha. the cars are appealing to that younger sort of audience who like modified versions of turbocharged four-cylinder cars. Oh, I think that's it. You know, it could well be something that we will see develop over the next few rounds um, and this year of uh, TCR. And to um, your point, Tony, manufacturers now activate in such a different way that people of our generation or yeah our generation aren't going to necessarily see how that is activated but molly taylor's posts about it and what honda might be doing online and gaming and things around that sort of area is where the manufacturer is is activating now and and uh, Dan and Jordan you would understand uh, more so than some uh, with the online platforms you're working with that there's uh, such a different level and a different way to activate over what is the traditional ad in a newspaper and a 30 second commercial I mean, what I was probably more surprised at um, before the weekend was that in the Daily Telegraph, they did a one or two page spread on TCR, which I was really surprised at given New Zealand's uh, interest in supercars. But yeah, certainly with, with the drivers, team, everything in the category, the way that it's promoting itself on social media, you know, obviously it can be a bit of an echo chamber that of course we're all going to see this because this is the industry that we're in. This is the sport that we love. But I've even seen people from slightly outside, you know, saying, you know, I saw this person's post like Molly Taylor or Chelsea Angelo, that kind of stuff. And, you know, seeing that they're involved in this and that's been driving up a bit of support. So, yeah, it really is kind of changing changing the way that the uh, those kind of grassroots categories like the Shannon's Nationals, even though there is a lot of professionalism in it, but the way that they're approaching 
gaining fans and also retaining them, similar to how supercars has been over the past few years. Our final break for this week's show, our mammoth show, Inside Supercars. We'll be back right after this. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. This year in Formula 3, I think it's a fantastic environment for me to be doing that. However, I believe for myself, uh, a sustainable career in tin tops such as Bet Supercars in Australia is where I see myself. Second crack at the Australian time since we've been back and a bit unlucky the first time that we end up with a win there at Freeway City uh, two weeks ago. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Join in the conversation, post your thoughts on our Facebook page and to ask a question, email insiders at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm Tony Delberto from Shell V Power Racing. Welcome to Inside Supercars. It's time to wrap up. Um, The last thing on the agenda for today is the Indy 500. Now, this year is a wonderful year because we again, as we have for the last few years, got two Australians in the race. This is the uh, current Indy 500 champion. And James Davison back again. Now, Power has uh, qualified in sixth place on the uh, second row of the 3-3 row. And uh, James Davison back in the 15th place. Um, it, fantastic. Have uh, you guys, uh, any of you ever been to the Indy 500? Yeah, I think I'll need to save my pennies a little bit more to get over there one year. All right. No, I've, I've, uh, I've not had the pleasure yet, unfortunately. Uh, I would, well, it's something I'd, I'd love to see. hear about a lot from the boss, I've got to say. <laughs> well, you would have been a bit involved in that time, wouldn't you? Uh, gee, it was just before my time. So, uh, uh, yeah, so maybe, if it was, maybe it was 12 months either side. But, yeah. I must say, though, if uh, if we do ever change the date of Australia Day, and I know that's a hotly uh, contested political topic, but if we ever do change it, I think we should change it to the 26th or the uh, 27th of May. To replicate, you know, last year when there was the real Australia Day of Daniel Ricciardo winning the Monaco Grand Prix, yeah. and then only hours later, Will Power winning the Indy 500. And you were a busy lad, keying, keyboarding away, weren't you? Well, having having been to the Indy 500, it is certainly well worthwhile. I uh, treasure the fact I went there in uh, 2015, I think it was, and. Uh, I uh, I look forward to going to it again. It's uh, well worth doing. I, I rather was interested in um, Tim Sendrick's comment when he went to Bathurst some years ago. This is before the Penske were involved in a team. And uh, Sendrick actually said that uh, we did at Bathurst a better build-up to the race than they did at the Indy 5. Because the Indy 500, of course, is on in the afternoon, whereas Bathurst, we know what time of day it starts. And... It comes with a rush, whereas the Indy 500 sort of like staggers along. And one of the fascinating things about that race is that how quickly the, the crowd builds up and how quickly they go. You turn around and there's no one in the grandstands and then bang, they're there. This has happened. They're gone again. It's quite extraordinary. Um, you, you wouldn't believe it. if. Uh, have any of you got thoughts that uh, it'll be a willpower win for the second time? I think as, as ever, Indy is one of the most unpredictable races. You know, uh, the late great Dan Weldon showed that in 2011 when he uh, he stole the win at the last corner after, what was it, J.R. Hildebrand hit the wall? Um, yeah. Passing a, passing a back marker. So, yeah, as, as Murray Walker used to say, Anything can happen, and it usually does. Yeah. I, I think we've seen it's probably, you know, qualifying practice or the lead-up suggests it's probably going to be a Chevrolet team certainly favoured. You talk about, you know, Team Penske had all three of their cars 
in the Fast Nine, uh, as did Ed Carpenter Racing, you know, Carpenter himself, uh, Piggott, and Ed Jones. So they're actually starting second through fourth, respectively. So I think, I reckon the one most likely to challenge them, probably I think Alexander Rossi. He's only he's qualified ninth, but that's better than where he came from last year and really made an impact even when it was so difficult to pass with the way the, uh, the aero kits were last year. I think we just talked about before the spectacle and that Indianapolis, and it's topical given what's happened to uh, a certain Spaniard. I just want to say, how good is bumping? You know, you add that tension and that dynamic going into the race, even to see, you know, it's even a major contest. I think that's probably the best part of the spectacle, even, to just see people trying so hard and ragging it so much to just try and qualify for the race and have a shot at it. I think it's fantastic. Indeed, indeed. And the fact, and, and sorry to cut in, the no, fact no. That, that the fact that a legend of the sport, Fernando Alonso, missed out on qualifying for the Indy 500 this year just shows you how ruthlessly competitive that bumping session can be. Yeah, well, coming from a Spanish family myself, I bear absolutely no ill will to Alonso. I would have loved to have seen him get up. But you're right, it's... Um, yeah, it, it shows how cutthroat it is. Yes, and it's not the first time that a big name has missed the 500. Uh, uh, my memories of Little Al missing it and also... Um, uh, oh, Emma. Yeah, and Emerson Fittipaldi. but you also had the situation where... Oh, from Ohio, Sun Races now. Isn't that terrible when you go for a blank like that? But, uh, you know, he was defending champion, uh, not of the race, but of the series, missing out. Um, but uh, my two cents worth is, and uh, mates of mine who are Speedway people out of Indiana, they're all cheering on Ed Carpenter. They're hoping and uh, predicting that it's Ed Carpenter's year. And uh, I know this is a, a guy, whilst he's got a family link to the Holmans, he also came up the right way, as they like to say. He came up through the um, midget sprints and dirt champ cars, which is the what is considered the traditional path to Indy, which hasn't probably been the traditional path for Indy for about 30, 40 years now. Um, but uh, it will be interesting to see the greatest spectacle in motor racing. Now, uh, before we do go, Dan, you have spent a, a long part of today, uh, as we recorded this on Tuesday, acknowledging the life and efforts of a man who, uh, well... I know Tony has been quite worried that he died at 70, but it could have been so much sooner, and that is Nicky Lauda. Definitely. It's a, it's a remarkable life, isn't it? I guess, you know, when when someone gets of a certain age and the signs are there, you're not completely surprised, but it's still very sad because of, of what he, he represents. And, and I, you know, a lot of people have said today that that's, you know, the greatest comeback in sport. It's a very good case to make, you know, being read the last rights and then, you know, not only winning the championship next year, but even coming back to race six Same weeks year. later. And, yeah, so three World Drivers Championships, he's an aviation entrepreneur, you know, he's advised or, you know, worked in, in management at all these teams. He's done so much in, in Formula One and... And in motorsport and life in general. And I think, you know, he got through 
seven years, he got pretty good value out of him. It's a quite remarkable career. Uh, and the fact he's uh, intimately with the Mercedes team uh, currently, um, uh, I'm sure that that team will uh, feel uh, the impact of him no longer being there on pit lane wall. But, um, um, look, it's been absolutely fantastic uh, getting you three gentlemen together with Craig and myself. Um, so we thank you and uh, look forward to catching up with you at the track. Uh, I know that, uh, Lockie Gordon, will you be coming down from Canberra to Winton? No, unfortunately, I've got a uh, pretty big weekend ahead. And uh, with Reconciliation Day on Monday, I can't give up those uh, double time and a half rates for 10 hours. So, unfortunately, right. I can't make it. All right, Jordan, thank you for your time today. And, Dale, will you be... Uh making a trip down. I think you mentioned you weren't, actually. All right, Jordan. Well, thank you for your time today. And, Dan, will you be uh, making a trip down? I think you mentioned you weren't, actually. So, well, uh, our editor, Tom Howard, who you've obviously had on here a few times, he'll be there on, on the ground, and also uh, one of our other younger reporters. I'll be back at uh, back at base supporting them, and also uh, our coverage of Monaco, of Indianapolis, and also Formula E, where it presented on the ground there in Berlin there. So it's going to be a massive weekend for us at cafe.com. Well, I hope uh, all of us enjoy our respective racing that we'll be seeing firsthand. Um, it should be uh, a terrific weekend. Um, as usual, the Victorian countryside will be uh, quite likely wet, but uh, there's nothing wrong with that, and there's a bunch of farmers who we don't see too much of it. So thank you again to uh, Lockie Mansell, Jordan Mullock and Dan Herrero for joining us on Inside Supercars, Tony Whitlock and Craig Ravel. Thanks, Thanks guys. And that's it for another week of Inside Supercars. Craig, it's good night from me. And good night from him. Good night. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next week for more at sportradio.com.au or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device, search Inside Supercars.